Chapter 13 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 13. The Charleston Convention. The great political struggle between the North and the South, between freedom and slavery, was approaching its culmination. The irrepressible conflict had shifted uneasily from caucus to Congress, from Congress to Kansas, incidentally to the Supreme Court and to the congressional elections in the various states. From Kansas, it had come back with renewed intensity to Congress. The next stage of development through which it was destined to pass was the presidential election of 1860, where, necessarily, the final result would depend largely upon the attitude and relation of parties, platforms, and candidates as selected and proclaimed by their national conventions. The first of these national conventions was that of the Democratic Party, long appointed to meet at Charleston, South Carolina, on April 23, 1860. The fortunes of the party had greatly fluctuated. The repeal of the Missouri Compromise had brought it shipwreck in 1854. It had regained victory in the election of Buchanan and a majority of the House of Representatives in 1856. Then the Lecompton imbroglio once more caused its defeat in the congressional elections of 1858. But worse than the victory of its opponents was the irreconcilable schism of its own ranks, the open war between President Buchanan and Senator Douglas. In a general way, the Southern democracy followed Buchanan, while the Northern democracy followed Douglas. Yet there was just enough local exception to baffle accurate calculation. Could the Charleston Convention heal the feud of leaders and bridge the chasm in policy and principle? As the time approached, and delegation after delegation was chosen by the states, all hope of accommodation gradually disappeared. Each faction put forth its utmost efforts, rallied its strongest men. Each caucus and convention only accentuated and deepened existing differences. When the convention met, its members brought not the ordinary tricks and expedients of politicians with carte blanche authority, but the precise formulated terms to which their constituencies would consent. They were only messengers, not arbitrators. The Charleston Convention was the very opposite of its immediate predecessor, the Cincinnati Convention. At Cincinnati, concealment and ambiguity had been the central thought and purpose. Everybody was anxious to be hoodwinked. Delegates, constituencies, and leaders had willingly joined in the game of cheat and be cheated. Availability, harmony, party success were the paramount objects. No similar ambiguity, concealment, or bargain was possible at Charleston. There was, indeed, a whole brood of collateral issues to be left in convenient obscurity, but the central questions must not be shirked. 
the Lecompton quarrel, the Freeport doctrine, the property theory, the slave state dogma, the Congressional Slave Code proposal must be boldly met and squarely adjusted. Even if the delegates had been disposed to trifle with their constituents, the leaders themselves would tolerate no evasion on certain cardinal points. Douglas, in his door letter, had announced that he would suffer no interpolation of new issues into the Democratic creed. In his pamphlet replied to Judge Black, that he repeated his determination with emphasis. Suppose it were true that I am a presidential aspirant. Does that fact justify a combination by a host of other presidential aspirants, each of whom may imagine that his success depends upon my destruction, and the preaching a crusade against me for bodily avowing now the same principles to which they and I were pledged at the last presidential election. Is this a sufficient excuse for devising a new test of political orthodoxy? I prefer the position of senator or even that of a private citizen, where I would be at liberty to defend and maintain the well-defined principles of the Democratic Party, to accepting a presidential nomination upon a platform incompatible with the principle of self-government in the territories, or the reserved rights of the states, or the perpetuity of the Union under the Constitution. This declaration very clearly defined the issue on one side. On the other side, it was also formulated with equal distinctness. Jefferson Davis already recognized as the ablest leader of the Buchanan wing of the Democratic senators, wrote and submitted to the United States Senate on February 2, 1860, a series of resolutions designed to constitute the administration or Southern Party doctrines, which were afterwards revised and adopted by a caucus of Democratic senators. These resolutions expressed the usual party tenets, and on two of the controverted points asserted dogmatically exactly that which Douglas had stigmatized as an intolerable heresy. The fourth resolution declared that neither Congress nor a territorial legislature, whether by direct legislation or legislation of an indirect and unfriendly character, possesses power to annul or impair the constitutional right of any citizen of the United States to take his slave property into the common territories and there hold and enjoy the same while the territorial condition remains. While the fifth resolution declared that if experience should at any time prove that the judiciary and executive authority do not possess means to ensure adequate protection to constitutional rights in a territory, and if the territorial government shall fail or refuse to provide the necessary remedies for that purpose, it will be the duty of Congress to supply such deficiency. Party discipline was so strong among the Democrats that public expectation looked confidently to at least a temporary agreement or combination which would enable the factions, by a joint effort, to make a hopeful presidential campaign but no progress whatever was made in that direction. As the clans gathered at Charleston, the notable difference developed itself that while one wing was filled with unbounded enthusiasm for a candidate, 
The other was animated by an earnest and stubborn devotion to an idea. Douglas was the pivot individual of the Charleston Convention, wrote an observant journalist. Every delegate was for or against him. Every motion meant to nominate or not nominate him. Every parliamentary war was pro or con Douglas. This was the surface indication, and indeed, it may be said with truth, it was the actual feeling of the northern faction of the Democratic Party. Douglas was a genuinely popular leader. He had the power to inspire a pure personal enthusiasm. He had aroused such hero worship as may be possible in modern times and in American politics. Beyond this, however, the Lecompton controversy and his open persecution by the Buchanan administration made his leadership and his candidacy a necessity to the Northern Democrats. With Southern Democrats, the feeling went somewhat deeper. Forgetting how much they owed him in the past and how much they might still gain through him in the future, they saw only that he was now their stumbling block, the present obstacle to their full and final success. It was the Douglas Doctrine, squatter sovereignty, and unfriendly legislation rather than the man which they had come to oppose and were determined to put down. Any other individual holding these heresies would have been equally obnoxious. They had no candidate of their own. They worshipped no single leader, but they followed a principle with unfaltering devotion. They clung unswervingly not only to the property theory, but advanced boldly to its logical sequence, congressional protection to slavery in the territories. Of the convention's preliminary work, little is worth recording. There were the clamor and protest of contesting delegations and small fire of parliamentary skirmishes by which factions feel and measure each other's strength. Caleb Cushing was made permanent chairman for the triple reason that he was from Massachusetts, that he was the ablest presiding officer in the body, and was for the moment filled with blind devotion to Southern views. The actual temper of the convention was made manifest by the ready agreement of both extremes to join battle in making the platform before proceeding to the nomination of candidates. The usual committee of one member from each state was appointed and to it was referred the deluge of resolutions which had been showered upon the convention. Had an amicable solution of the slavery issue been possible, this platform committee would have found it, for it labored faithfully to accomplish the miracle. But after three days and nights of fruitless suggestion and persuasion, the committee reappeared in convention. Upon four points, they had come to either entire or substantial agreement. In addition to reaffirming formally the Cincinnati Platform of 1856, they advised the convention to favor 1. The faithful execution of the fugitive slave law. 2. The protection of naturalized citizens. 3. The construction of a Pacific Railroad. 4. The acquisition of the island of Cuba. But upon the principal topic, the question of slavery in the territories, they felt compelled to report that even an approximate unanimity was impossible. In undisguised sorrow, they proceeded to present two radically different reports. The convention 
not yet in the least realizing that the great Democratic Party had suffered fatal shipwreck in the secret committee room, listened eagerly to the reports and explanatory speeches of the majority and minority of the committee. The majority report planted itself squarely upon the property theory and congressional protection. Mr. Avery of North Carolina said it was presented in the name of 17 states with 127 electoral votes, every one of which would be cast for the nominee. He argued that in occupying new territories, Southern men could not compete with emigrant aid societies at the North. These could send a voter to the territories for the sum of $200, while it would cost a Southern man $1,500. Secure political power by emigration and permit the territorial legislatures to decide the slavery question, and the South would be excluded as effectually as the Wilmot Proviso. Cuba must be acquired, and the flag of this great country must float over Mexico and the Central American states. But if you apply this doctrine of popular sovereignty and establish a cordon of free states from the Pacific to the Atlantic, where in the future are the South to emigrate? They asked the equal right to emigrate with their property and protection from Congress during the territorial condition. They would leave it to the people in convention assembled when framing a state constitution to determine the question of slavery for themselves. They had no purpose but to have a vexed question settled and to put the Democratic Party on a clear, unclouded platform, not a double-faced one, one face to the North and one face to the South. Henry B. Payne of Ohio presented and defended the report of the minority. It asserted that all questions in regard to property in states or territories were judicial in their character, and that the Democratic Party would abide by past and future decisions of the Supreme Court concerning them. Mr. Payne explained that while the majority report was supported by 15 slave and two free states, representing 127 electoral votes, the minority report was endorsed by 15 free states, representing 176 electoral votes. He argued that by the universal consent of the Democratic Party, the Cincinnati platform referred this question of slavery to the people of the territories, declaring that Congress should in no event intervene one way or the other, and that all controversies should be settled by the courts. Now the proposition of the majority report was to make a complete retraction of those two cardinal doctrines of the Cincinnati platform. The Northern mind had become thoroughly imbued with this great doctrine of popular sovereignty. You could not tear it out of their hearts unless you tore out their heartstrings themselves. I repeat that upon this question of congressional non-intervention, we are committed by the acts of Congress. We are committed by the acts of national democratic conventions. We cannot recede without personal dishonor, and so help us God, we never will recede. Between these extremes of recommendation, another member of the platform committee, Benjamin F. Butler of Massachusetts, proposed a middle course. He advocated the simple reaffirmance of the Cincinnati platform. If it had suffered a double interpretation, 
so had the Bible and the Constitution of the United States. But beyond serving to consume time and amuse the convention, Mr. Butler's speech made no impression. The real tournament of debate followed between William L. Yancey of Alabama and Senator George E. Pugh of Ohio. It turned out in the end that Mr. Yancey was the master spirit of the Charleston Convention, though that body was far from entertaining any such suspicion at the beginning. In exterior appearance, he did not fill the portrait of the traditional fire-eater. He is described as a compact, middle-sized man, straight-limbed, with a square-built head and face, and an eye full of expression. A very mild and gentlemanly man, always wearing a genuinely good-humored smile, and looking as if nothing in the world could disturb the equanimity of his spirits. He had, besides, a marvelous gift of persuasive oratory. He was the Wendell Phillips of the South, for like his northern rival, he was a born agitator. Above all his colleagues, he was the brain and soul and irrepressible champion of the pro-slavery reaction throughout the cotton states. He was tireless and ubiquitous, traveling, talking, writing, lecturing, animating every intrigue, directing every caucus, making speeches and drafting platforms at every convention to defend, propagate, and perpetuate African slavery was his mission. He was the ultra of the ultras, accepting the institution as morally right and divinely sanctioned, desiring its extension, and inclined to favor, though not then himself advocating, the reopening of the African slave trade. He held that all federal laws prohibiting such trade ought to be repealed so that each state might decide the question for itself. Still more, Mr. Yancey was not only an agitator and fire-eater, but for years an insidious, persevering conspirator to promote secession. Occupying such a position, he was naturally the champion of the cotton states at Charleston. The defense of the ultra-demands of the South was by common consent devolved upon him, and it was understood long beforehand that he was prepared with the principal speech from that side. In full consciousness of the fact that he and his colleagues were then at Charleston with a predetermination to force a program of disruption expressly designed as a prelude to intended disunion, Mr. Yancey stood up and with smiling face and silvery tones assured his hearers that he and his colleagues from Alabama were not disunionists per se, then he proceeded with his speech. Only its keynote was new, but the novelty was of startling import to Northern delegates. The Northern Democrats, he stated, were losing ground and falling before their victorious adversaries. Why? Because they had tampered with and pandered to the anti-slavery sentiment. They had admitted that slavery was wrong. This was surrendering the very citadel of their argument. They must reform their lines and change their tactics. They must come up to the high requirements of the occasion and take a new departure. The remainder of his speech was an insinuating plea for the property doctrine and congressional intervention 
for which the galleries and convention rewarded him with long and earnest applause. Even if the great Southern agitator speech had been wanting in point and eloquence, success was supplied by the unmistakable atmosphere and temper of this great Charleston audience. The more astute of the Douglas delegates were struck with the dismay of a new revelation. Their cause was lost. Their party was gone. Senator Pugh of Ohio resented the dictation of the advocates of slavery in a warmth of just indignation. He thanked God that at last a bold and honest man had told the whole truth of the demands of the South. It was now before the country that the South did demand an advanced step from the Democratic Party. He accurately traced the downfall of the Northern democracy to her changing and growing exactions. Taunted with their weakness, they were now told they must put their hands on their mouths and their mouths in the dust. Gentlemen of the South, said Mr. Pugh, you mistake us. We will not do it. Such language had never been heard in a Democratic National Convention, and the hall was as still as a funeral. This was Friday night, the fifth day of the convention. A crisis had long been whispered of as the skeleton in the party closet. It seemed to be at hand, and in a parliamentary uproar the question was vehemently demanded, but the chairman skillfully managed at length to secure an adjournment. The crisis had in reality come on Thursday night in the committee room in the hopeless first double report of its platform committee. The dissolution of the convention did not take place till the Monday following. A great party, after a vigorous and successful life of thirty years, could not die easily. The speeches of Avery and Payne, of Yancey and Pugh on Friday, were recognized as cries of defiance, but not yet accepted as moans of despair. On Saturday morning, President Buchanan's lieutenant, William Bigler of Pennsylvania, essayed to ride the storm and steer to a Southern victory. But he only succeeded in securing a recommittal of both platforms to the committee. Nothing, however, was gained by the maneuver. Saturday afternoon, the committee once more reported the same disagreement in slightly changed phraseology. Two antagonistic platforms presenting the same sharp difference of principle, one demanding congressional intervention, the other declaring against it. Then the parliamentary storm was unloosed for the remainder of that day with such fury that the chairman declared his physical inability to continue a contest with 600 gentlemen as to who should cry the loudest, and threatened to leave the chair. On Monday, April 30th, the seventh day of the convention, a final decision was reached. The proposal of Butler's report simply to reaffirm the Cincinnati platform was supported by only 105 A's to 198 no's. Then, by 165 to 138, the convention voted to substitute the minority report for that of the majority. In other words, to adopt the Douglas non-intervention platform. The explosion was near. 
but still delayed, and the delegates of the cotton states sat sullenly through a tangle of routine voting. Finally, the question was renewed on Butler's proposition to adopt the Cincinnati platform pure and simple. This was the red flag to the mad bull. Mississippi declared that the Cincinnati platform was a great political swindle on one half the states of the Union. And from that time on, the cotton states ceased to act as a part of the convention. As soon as a lull in the proceedings permitted, Mr. Yancey put in execution his program of demand, disruption, disunion, and rebellion, labored for through long years, and announced by himself with minute distinctness nine months before. Led by the Alabama delegation, the cotton states, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, Florida, Texas, and Arkansas, with protests and speeches, with all the formality and solemnity which the occasion allowed, seceded from the Charleston Convention and withdrew from the deliberations in Institute Hall. That same Monday night, the city of Charleston expressed its satisfaction by a grand jubilee. Music, bonfires, and extravagant declamation held an excited crowd in Courthouse Square till a late hour, and in a high-wrought peroration, Yancey prophesied, with all the confidence and exultation of a triumphant conspirator, that, perhaps even now, the pen of the historian is nibbed to write the story of a new revolution. End of chapter 13, Sheila Blunt.